Good morning or good afternoon to those of you listening around the country. Uh, welcome to our webinar covering litigation options for individuals. Uh, this is one of a series of four webinars that the Clasco Immigration Law Partners Firm is putting on for um, uh, to, to cover litigation in various respects. So we've had uh, litigation webinars for employers. Uh, we are conducting one for universities. Uh, we had a litigation webinar for EB-5, and today we're covering litigation options for individuals. The webinars that we've previously done on litigation are available on our website, which is ClascoLaw.com. My name is Ron Clasco. I'm the managing partner of Clasco Immigration Law Partners. Uh, I presently am the national chairman of the litigation task force of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. I've been uh, involved in federal court litigation of immigration matters for several decades. Uh, most recently, I served as co-counsel on the a case that produced a nationwide preliminary injunction uh, that prevented the USCIS from going forward with its memorandum relating to unlawful presence and three and ten-year bars for F and J non-immigrants. I'm joined today by my partner, Dan Lundy. Dan, uh, heads up uh, our uh, litigation practice. Uh, Dan has litigated over 70 immigration cases in federal court of virtually every type of immigration matter, um, and he's been especially involved in recent times in some of the most complex EB-5 litigation going on in the country. So let's, uh, let's get started. Um, we will be covering two things today. Uh, number one is litigation to address delays, and number two is litigation to address denials. And unfortunately, both of these are at unprecedented levels. Um, in, uh, in all of the years and decades that I've practiced immigration law, we have never had either the length of uh, the length of delays in USCIS processing of every type of application, and we have never had the number of denials that we have seen. So just to provide you some background and statistics, um, in terms of uh, denials, for example, in, uh, in the H-1B area, uh, the denials have gone up four times what they were before. Um, in all, in many types of applications, denial rates have doubled. We're going to start by talking about processing times. And for a little bit of context there, um, the government processing times on all types of immigration applications has increased about 50% just within the last year or two. The case completions by the Immigration Service per hour have decreased 79%. The um, number of cases in the backlog are now in the millions. 
uh, and we are looking at some areas where processing times are up to three or four years. This is unprecedented, and we're going to talk today about what can be done about it. So, Dan, if we have a petition that's delayed, um, what, what are our options? So, your first option is the USCIS customer service line. You can call the 800 number if you, if you can get through to somebody. Uh, you can ask them why your case is delayed. They'll tell you, we'll put in an inquiry, we'll get back to you, and, you know, in somewhere between a couple of weeks to a couple of months, you'll get a form response that says, we're sorry, we're working on your case. Um, your second option is, is the online, the USCIS online customer service portal now. You can make an inquiry through that. You will also get a form response with more meaningful information. Uh, some of the units, uh, for instance, the Immigrant Investor Program Office have a dedicated email where you can actually make an email inquiry. Uh, the result will be the same. You will get a form email saying, we're sorry, our cases are taking longer than we would like, and we're working on it. We'll get back to you. Um, they're basically worthless, but you should at least try them. Um, next is the USCIS Ombudsman Office. The Ombudsman is actually an independent agency that is, exists to help customers resolve problems with USCIS. Uh, in recent years, we've found the Ombudsman Office to be particularly useless. Um, you know, we had one case where somebody needed to get a stamp in their passport because they were in danger of losing their job. Uh, we made an inquiry with the ombudsman's office. They got back to us promptly three months later to ask if we still needed assistance. Um, totally useless. The next option is you can make an inquiry through your local congressperson or senator's office. They all have immigration liaison teams. Um, we found that USCIS is no longer particularly sensitive to uh, pressure from Congress people or senators. They just don't care that, that a member of the Congress of the United States is making an inquiry about a case, uh, they will blow them off and give them a form response just like they will you. So where does that leave us? Well, there's one final possibility, and that is to go to federal court and file a complaint for mandamus to compel the government to act in your case. So far, this is the only uh, of these options here that has uh, had any success of late. So let's talk about what mandamus is. Mandamus is simply a complaint filed electronically uh, in a federal court requesting a judge to order the Immigration Service to make a decision on a pending petition. Uh, it does not ask the judge to approve the case because mandamus is simply uh, ordering action that the government is required to take. When we file mandamus complaints, we also include a count called unreasonable delay. So under the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, it says that uh, if an agency is unreasonably delaying action, a federal court can order them to take action. So we seek both mandamus and unreasonable delay relief to get a court to order the Immigration Service simply to make a decision. That decision could be an RFE, it could be annoyed, it could be approval, it could be a denial. Whatever is going to happen, 
with mandamus, it's likely to happen a lot sooner. So Dan, at what point do we think it's appropriate to file a mandamus complaint for our clients? So technically it's possible to file at any time, but we have to prove that the delay is unreasonable. The, the sooner we file, after you file the petition, the more likely it is that the government will challenge the complaint or, or the court will deny the, the request because it's not unreasonable. So we generally advocate that we, you know, we don't, we don't want to file a mandamus until the case is really beyond the, the normal published process at time. Now, USCIS has caught on to this and recently in, in some instances has arbitrarily doubled or tripled the stated processing time. So if you go onto the website, for instance, in EB-5, a 526 petition as of March was taking somewhere between 20 and 24 months, according to the USCIS website. It's now something like 44 to, to 90 or something. And they tell you you don't make an inquiry until after, you know, the, the later of the numbers. We think this is arbitrary. We think this is made up. Um, we don't think the cases are really taking this long or should take this long. So we're still going by that 20 to 24, 20 to 24 months. So if your case has been pending two years, at least on a, on a 526, we think it's reasonable to file even though the stated processing time is longer. And this, this would apply in other areas too. So if, if cases are taking, even if they manipulate the processing time numbers on the website, if the case is taking substantially longer than it used to take, we would be comfortable filing a mandamus. Okay. Sometimes so, there are special circumstances in the case, you know, if there are humanitarian reasons, if there are, you know, you're going to lose a job, um, not adjudicating the application will frustrate the purpose of the statute. You know, for instance, H-1B, you're supposed to start work on October 1. Uh, if it's December and they still haven't adjudicated the petition, well, that's a problem. Um, so even if it's not outside of normal processing time, we might file then. Every case is different, and we would evaluate the facts and circumstances of your case to make a judgment about whether or not it's a good idea to file now. So let's say that a decision is made to file a mandamus complaint. Um, what is likely to happen? What are the next steps? Well, we have filed um, certainly uh, mandamus complaints for hundreds of our clients. And so we have a fair amount of experience and a fair amount of idea of how this is going to play out. I would certainly say in at least 85 to 90% of the cases, and in recent times even more than that, um, the end result is that uh, we have a discussion with the attorney representing the government, which is usually called the U.S. attorney, uh, and the U.S. attorney is not particularly interested in going and having to explain to a judge why it is that after two or three or four years, the Immigration Service has not been able to get around to making a decision on a case. So almost always the U.S. attorney will go back to his or her client, the Immigration Service, and say, I don't care what you do with this, but just make a decision because we really don't want to defend this in federal court. So again, in our experience, maybe 90% of the time, uh, within, I would say, two to four months of the filing of the complaint, uh, the result will be that there will be an adjudication. 
whatever the adjudication would eventually be, an approval, denial, an RFE, we will get the adjudication. And then we go from there. If it's an approval, that's great. If it's an RFE, we answer it. If it's a denial, we have a right to go back into federal court to challenge the denial, which we'll be talking about in a few minutes later in this webinar. So for most of our clients, uh, two to four months uh, from the time of filing the complaint is the likely timing for when they will see an adjudication. Ron, what happens if they don't agree to settle? If they don't agree to settle, then the, uh, there will either be what's called a motion to dismiss where the government will say, well, it's not even proper to file this mandamus complaint for various reasons. Uh, that is rarely successful. We're usually able to rebut those reasons and, and have the case move forward. And then both parties file what's called motions for summary judgment where both the government and we say there's no factual dispute here. Everyone agrees that we filed this, this, uh, this petition that has been pending this long, and we file a brief saying here's the reasons why the judge should order the government to make a decision, uh, and the uh, government attorney would say here's the reasons why you should not order the government to make a decision and you should let it stay there. One of the reasons that you very rarely get to that point is because if it gets to the point of a, ju of a judge's decision, uh, then the, and, and assuming we're successful and the judge says, yes, I think the government should make a decision, then there is a possibility that the judge can order that the government pay the legal fees of, of our law firm. Uh, under something called the Equal Access to Justice Act. So that's great, but in reality, we rarely get there because almost always there's an adjudication before there's going to be a judge's decision. Well, and also the, the government risks having a decision that says, you know, for instance, two years is unreasonable, and if their processing time is four years, well, now everybody, you know, with a pending petition has a, has a precedent that they can cite to that says, two years is unreasonable, and then they may have to change their processing time. So they really don't want to get an adverse decision. So, Dan, um, are there, is there any limit to the types of immigration petitions for which we can file mandamus? No. Um, we can pretty much file a mandamus for anything. I-129, I I-140, naturalization applications, adjustment of status, uh, even DS-260s, um, you know, if the consulate is taking too long or NBC is taking too long to process a, a, an immigrant visa application, um, we can file a mandamus. If the consulate has placed the case into administrative review for an extended time, we can also file a mandamus. Um, we, we pretty much have uh, pretty much everything. We, there's, there's not a lot that we cannot file a mandamus on. In immigration. Yeah, and, and the timing of the mandamus is different on each because the processing times are different on each. So, whereas, uh, uh, you know, if, a, if, a, uh, if an EB-5 petition is pending less than two years, we can file mandamus. We often don't want to, but if it's a, an I-129 or, or an I-45 or an N-400, we may do it quicker. Uh, on the next couple of slides, uh, we want, we, we've kind of accumulated the uh, series of six or seven questions that our clients ask us most often uh, regarding mandamus that we'll discuss with you uh, right now. So 
Uh, one, of course, is, well, you know, have, have we done this before? What's been the history? And I've, I've mentioned that already uh, a couple of minutes ago that, yes, we've done this for hundreds of clients and um, almost all the time the end result is an adjudication and two to four months is pretty normal. Um, advantages and disadvantages of filing a mandamus complaint. Um, the advantages are that uh, with the delays going on right now, uh, if you don't file a mandamus complaint, you may just be waiting a, a, an, a, an inordinate amount of time. So uh, Dan spelled out very clearly that there are a bunch of options of things you can do, but none of them are likely to result in action. So your choices are two. One is wait, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, or two, if you don't want to wait, then file a mandamus complaint, which will likely get action. There really is no disadvantage of filing a mandamus complaint other than the fact that uh, you're hiring a lawyer and paying legal fees, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but other than that, there's, there's no disadvantage. And, and people are concerned, well, if I file a mandamus complaint, uh, will the government retaliate against me? And, and our short answer, based on a lot of experience, is there's, there's no indication whatsoever that that happened. Uh, for uh, people listening, the whole concept of filing a complaint in federal court is, is you know, can, may sound intimidating. To the government, this is just normal stuff. They get uh, lots and lots and lots and lots of mandamus cases all the time. It's all part of the normal course of, uh, of the way things work. And, and the last thing that, that the government is going to do is say, well, we need to keep a list of all these people who file mandamus and somehow make different decisions. That's just not happening and not realistic in our experience. So Dan, so how about some of the other questions that we get? So uh, everybody wants to know how much does this cost? Well, I'm not gonna discuss that right here because every case is different, but um, realistically it's, it's, we're able to set a flat fee most of the time that's really rather affordable. It's not, you know, I know you hear stories about litigation costing hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's nowhere near that. Um, we're able to, to make it, and we're able to offer the service at a reasonable price for our clients so that our clients have access to the courts and have some kind of remedy where they wouldn't otherwise. Um, there is a possibility, so there's something called the Equal Access to Justice Act. If the government uh, fights us on a mandamus and, and loses, and the judge finds that the government's position is unreasonable, there's a chance that the government is going to have to pay our attorney's fees. So there's a good chance that, that the government will end up having it. Well, not a good chance. There's a, there's a chance that if, if we're unsuccessful in settling the case and USCIS fights us, there's a chance that the government will have to pay those legal fees. Um, there's generally not a conflict uh, between you and an employer. If you, if you will file a mandamus, you know, to get your H-1B or I-140 adjudicated, um, there, there's usually no reason that that would be a conflict with the employer. Uh, for, you know, as part of our service, one of the things we do is we look at the facts of your case. You know, the reason not to file a mandamus might include, um, we know we're going to get an RFE and the company would be in a better position six months from now than it is today to respond to that RFE. So if that were the case, we might counsel against, or counsel against filing a mandamus now and tell you to wait. Um, there's not a conflict. 
but every case has its own, you know, requires its own analysis, and we have to make a you know, determination and advise you on what the best course of action is. Um, so we get this question a lot. Can we find copies of, you know, how do we go and access copies of mandamus uh, filings or decisions online? Well, it's actually really hard to find them online because although they're public record and, and there's something called PACER, which is a system uh, that, you know, gives electronic access to court records, it doesn't classify the type of action by mandamus. So there's not a really easy way to look up immigration mandamus cases. So it may be hard to find the filings. Immigration cases are tend to be um, restricted. They tend to have restricted access for privacy concerns. Some of the courts out there will automatically uh, limit access to the documents in an immigration case uh, for, con for privacy concerns, which again makes it even harder to find out whether it's a mandamus or some other kind of action. Um, and in terms of decisions, well, as we've just said, you know, Ron said 85%. My experience is, you know, USCIS settles 99% of these cases. You know, I think in all the cases, all the mandamus cases I've filed, I've, they've fought me on one. Um, other than that, they've adjudicated the case and settled. So um, when they settle, there is no decision. And in fact, the settlement uh, typically is confidential and doesn't say anything about what the result was. So it's not like you can go out and search uh, decisions. I mean, you can. There are a handful of them out there uh, where USCIS did fight the case, but in the vast majority of cases, they're not fighting, so there is no decision. So it's not necessarily easy to go out and, and look for mandamus filings. We'll discuss um, any questions that we haven't addressed on mandamus uh, during the question and answer period following the webinar. But we now want to move on to the other type of immigration litigation uh, that our firm gets uh, involved in, and that is litigation to address not delays, but denials of applications. So uh, if there is a denial of an application, there are four options of what to do about it, you know, four options in addition to doing nothing. So one option, sometimes, the best thing to do is simply file a new petition. If the decision looks wrong and looks like the kind of thing that maybe if a different examiner looked at it, it could be approved, uh, and, or if we uh, uh, are taking over, uh, you know, a lot of times we're referred litigation from other offices. If we think that uh, we would like to see other things in the petition, uh, if we're going to go to federal court, we may file a new petition even if it results in a new denial then we're going to have the record we want to have. So that's one option. A second option is within 30 days of a denial, it is possible to file something called a motion to reopen. And a motion to reopen is providing the immigration service additional evidence that was not available when the original petition was filed and saying, based on this additional evidence, please make a new decision and, and, and reconsider and approve. Um, we rarely do this unless we really have new evidence and unless we uh, really think that it's going to result in a different decision. Most frequently, we, the, the only reason we would do it most often would be, again, if we think that there are things that, uh, even though the case is going to be denied, we think that there's additional documentation that we want to have in the record 
because we want to have it before the federal court judge if we're going to go to federal court. Uh, a disadvantage of filing a motion to reopen is that what is often a pretty sloppy and often uh, uh, often a, a, a sloppy decision from the examiner and often a decision that might be filled with both legal errors and factual errors, when you get a second decision on a motion to reopen, it's more likely to be a well-written decision, which makes it just a little bit harder to then challenge in federal court. The third option is within 30 days filing an appeal to the Administrative Appeals Office of USCIS. Uh, this is an option that we usually don't advise to do for two reasons. Number one is it usually takes a very long time to get an answer from the AAO, uh, often uh, over a year and sometimes well over a year. And secondly, in most types of petitions, the approval rate at the AAO is very low. And especially in recent times, it's been our experience that the AAO has become somewhat of a policy arm of USCIS and simply upholds USCIS policy, which leaves us with the fourth option. And the fourth option is that we can file a complaint in federal court. This is not mandamus. This is called a declaratory judgment complaint. And a declaratory judgment complaint, unlike mandamus, asks the court to look at the legal issues and decide whether the immigration service was wrong in issuing the denial. And the result we're trying to get is that the court will order the Immigration Service to reverse its denial uh, and issue an approval because the court will say that the basis for the denial was incorrect. So, Dan, if, if we're doing this, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what we have to put in the complaint and what our firm's history is of, of doing these cases and uh, uh, you know, where we've uh, had some good success. So declaratory judgment, not to get into the weeds too much, but um, declaratory judgment is just is the jurisdictional statute that gives us a, an access to the court. The real, you know, the claim that we're bringing is usually under the Administrative Procedures Act. Uh, which lets us challenge a decision of USCIS if it was arbitrary, capricious, or not otherwise in accordance with law. Um, for for the, those in the audience, it's probably not that big a distinction, but that's that's just some background. Um, obviously, included in the case, you know, we the decision, right? We include the 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 cases based on the administrative record, so the government will prepare the administrative record. It's very rare that we get to access, you know, that we get discovery or we get to access anything outside of the administrative record. The case is usually decided just on what's in the immigration file. Um, we will obviously allege that the, the decision was wrong, that they, you know, for whatever reason, whether legal, legally, factually, they made a mistake. Um, so we've in terms of types of cases we've litigated, we've litigated a lot of uh, EB-5 cases. We've had good success on, on uh, challenging USCIS findings that our investment agreements are redemption agreements when they're not. Um, we've filed cases on H-1Bs uh, challenging specialty occupation. 
We've filed cases on EB1A, uh, cases of extraordinary ability where USCIS has found that they don't meet the criteria, you know, when they clearly do. Um, we filed a ton, you know, uh, sorry, that's mandamus. We filed a ton of mandamus on adjustment of status once upon a time. But um, in terms of the APA stuff, it's really uh, been a pretty broad variety. Lately, it's EB5 heavy, um, but it, you know, L1s, uh, EB1C, H1B, O1, EB1A cases have all been uh, subject to our litigations where we've been successful. So when we are in a position to discuss with our clients whether we think it's a good idea to file a declaratory judgment complaint, we're looking at several issues. Um, one is, uh, what ex you know, do we really think that the Immigration Service made an error? And there are two different types of errors, and sometimes we see both. Uh, it's not unusual that there's going to be simply incorrect factual information in the denial. We sometimes have denials where they get the names of the company wrong or the names of the individual wrong um, or, you know, a, a whole multitude of facts wrong, and that's great when you're going into federal court. The basic issue in federal court is going to be what the law is, and this is a big difference. When you're filing an application with the Immigration Service, they are going to apply their policy, and their policy often changes. The issue in federal court is not what the latest policy of the Immigration Service is. The issue is what the law is. And very often we find ourselves in federal court saying, we don't really care what the policy is. This is what the law is, and there's an error of law here. A big issue before we take, before we recommend taking a case into federal court is how good is the record? Dan mentioned that uh, when we file a declaratory judgment complaint in federal court, uh, it is very rare that we're going to be able to get what's called discovery, which means more information. The judge will be deciding based on the record. So the record is the petition, uh, any RFE, any response to the RFE, um, uh, whatever was filed with the immigration services, the record. So if we think that the record is not really as good as we like, and this happens a lot, as I said, when we get cases referred to us, uh, and maybe we'd like, for example, to have an expert opinion on whether something is a specialty occupation for H-1B, uh, we may decide that without that expert opinion, we don't think it's good to go to federal court, and maybe we would do a motion to reopen or a new petition to get that into the record. Another thing that's very helpful in declaratory judgment is when we can show that the immigration service has been inconsistent in its decision making. So we've had cases where maybe a, a, an H-1B has been approved and four extensions have been approved and all of a sudden there's a denial. Uh, or where the company has had uh, eight other people with the same petition of position that have been approved and now this one's being denied. Uh, so when the government deviates from previous decisions, that's often a favorable factor in us deciding whether to take the case into federal court. So just like we talked with Mandamus, Dan, we, we said we filed a complaint. 
and we talked about what happens after that. How about in declaratory judgment? What happens after we file the complaint? So the government has 60 days to answer. Our, our goal, look, our goal generally with litigation, although we love to get precedent decisions and make the news and all that, our, our goal is really to get the client the resolution they want as quickly, easily, and cost-effectively as possible, which means in 90% of the cases we're trying to settle. Uh, rather than actually go through motions and fight, you know, have a protracted battle with USCIS. So U.S. attorney will make an appearance, we'll reach out, contact them, we'll try to negotiate and say, hey, look, you know, your guy's goofed here, can we just reopen this and, and approve it? Or, you know, sometimes they'll agree to reopen an RFE, you know, if, they, if they're something they're isn't satisfied about that we know we can provide more evidence on, um, we're willing to let them reopen and issue an RFE. If they decide that they are going to fight us on this, and they're just not going to reopen, um, we'll set a briefing schedule. The government will produce the administrative record, and then they'll set a, a briefing schedule where we file cross motions for summary judgment. Um, so there's a motion, there's a response, and there's a reply. So each side gets basically three shots at the apple. Um, the process generally takes several months, uh, the briefing process, and then the, the court to make a decision. Uh, I mean, you're looking at, if they fight us on, on this kind of case, we're looking at somewhere between six months and a year to get a resolution. If they don't fight us, it's, you know, usually, again, in the two to four months time frame that we talked about with mandamus. So if the, um, what, what often happens on these types of cases, uh, is that the filing of the declaratory judgment complaint results in the government on its own motion reopening the denial, um, which can lead to several results. Most often, the government reopening the denial leads to an RFE. Uh, sometimes it's the same information that's been requested before, sometimes it's different, um, and very often the end result is we reply to the RFE and then we get an approval. If the government really wanted to litigate the case, they probably wouldn't have reopened uh, and, and, uh, and issued the RFE. So our experience is that um, uh, very often reopening ultimately results in an approval of the case. Dan talked about a number of the types of cases that we've litigated. Uh, in terms of what we see going forward, uh, I see the bulk of the litigation, both that we're doing and other firms are doing, uh, is likely to be in the H-1B area on, on several different issues. Um, the, the area that I expect will have, that I have seen and expect to continue to see to be the largest area of litigation is the government's interpretation of what is a specialty occupation for H-1B uh, purposes. Uh, and I do expect that there's a likelihood that there will be a nationwide class action on the specialty occupation issue. Uh, and uh, I do know that uh, uh, there is presently uh, an attempt to find as many plaintiffs as possible who are interested in participating in that. And the problem is that the government is interpreting what is a specialty occupation very, very different than it had previously for many, many years, and that's what's resulted in the large increase in denial. In the H-1B area, 
there's also, I'm anticipating significant litigation um, on issues such as uh, the government approving the H-1B, but not for the three years requested, but only, for example, for six months. If there's only, uh, at the time of filing the petition, uh, uh, clear availability of work for six months, they'll approve it for six months, even though there's every indication that this company is going to continue to do business, continue to have other clients. They just don't know exactly what you know, that client will be. Um, there's issues of what's called employer-employee relationship, which are likely to be litigated in increased amounts in H-1B. Uh, Dan mentioned that uh, we've had uh, good success in L-1A litigation, the government's interpretation of what is a manager or executive for L-1A purposes is, again, more restrictive than we believe it should be under the law and I expect there will continue to be significant litigation in that area. Uh, and the last area that's likely to see very substantial litigation, uh, again referenced by Dan, is EB-5. Uh, and there are a whole host of issues. We had a separate litigation webinar on EB-5, so I won't go into what those issues are, but that's uh, likely to be an area of significant uh, and increasing litigation as we go forward. So we did want to leave some time for, uh, for questions, um, and what I want to do while, uh, while we're waiting for questions to come in, we have a, a few questions that we've gotten that we can address. Uh, feel free to, uh, to send your questions, and I'll address the ones that we've gotten here so far. Um, Dan, one question is, uh, relates to undeclaratory judgment. Um, the person says that they've heard that you have to go to the AAO, you have to do what's called exhausting administrative remedies before you go to federal court. Is that true? Is there a requirement to go to the AAO before you go into federal court? No, the AAO is an option, but it's not a requirement before you go to federal court. However, if you do file an appeal at the AAO, you then have to wait for that appeal to be decided before you can go to court because your decision is no longer final. If you, if you file another appeal or a motion, you don't have a final decision anymore, whereas if you don't, you have a final decision that you can go to right, right to court. The next question uh, has to do, uh, I mentioned uh, early on that um, I was involved uh, in the nationwide, uh, nationwide preliminary injunction uh, on, um, uh, that prevented the government from changing its policy on what constitutes unlawful presence for purposes of the three and 10 year bar uh, uh, for uh, students, F or J students or scholars. Uh, and the question has to do with what is the status of that? And, and the answer is that uh, back in May, the federal court judge in North Carolina issued the nationwide preliminary injunction which resulted in the government having to withdraw its policy memorandum, uh, which is no longer in force. However, that only exists until the judge makes a final decision. So we're now about six or seven months into the preliminary injunction, and the judge has not made a final decision, which as far as we're concerned is perfectly fine, 
because the nationwide preliminary injunction remains in effect. Um, if and when the judge makes a final decision, if the judge uh, uh, final decision is consistent with a preliminary injunction and says that the government cannot uh, uh, enforce that memo, then we're done and the memo doesn't exist and the policy doesn't exist unless the government decides to appeal to what's called the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, and then we would have to see what the Fourth Circuit says. But at least for now, uh, F's and J's are free to travel uh, without any fear that uh, the new policy affecting unlawful presence should, should affect them. Um, all right, so we have a question here. Uh, an EB1A Indian National Adjustment of Status Application um, the, it says the interview was completed, but the priority date is no longer current. So in order to do that, in order to um, uh, file adjustment, the priority date had to have been current, uh, but apparently now it is no longer current. So the question is, how long after the priority date becomes current should I wait to file suit? So. Um, as Dan mentioned, there's, there's no particular amount of time. Um, the, the, the questioner is correct that it would be, uh, it would be premature to file a mandamus uh, during the period where the priority date has what's called retrogressed and, and therefore the case actually can't be approved because the priority date isn't current. So that, that would not be considered time that the government has delayed. Once the priority date is current, there's no exact amount of time to, to wait. Uh, I would say in that example, if, if the adjustment has been pending, let's say, a couple of years, uh, partly when the priority date was current and then the priority date retrogressed, uh, and now it's current again, I, I don't know what you think, Dan. I would say I'd want to wait at least another six months uh, to a year before I would uh, proceed with mandamus at that point. I, under the circumstances, because it could retrogress again, um, I think I would be more liberal. You know, I, I think you would have to make at least one or two inquiries with USCIS saying, hey, my priority is current. Um, I mean, I, I'd do it in like 30 or 60 days. I mean, I'd go right in there because you could end up getting stuck again for mm -hmm. okay. who knows how long. Okay. Um, we have uh, one other question, um, and that has to do with, uh, uh, Dan, you, you mentioned that we've done a lot of litigation involving uh, H-1B specialty occupation. Um, what, what are the issues that we get involved in in that litigation? So they're typically uh, USCIS reading the OOH um, and the ONET to find that, that they don't specifically state that a specific college degree is required degree is required for entry into the field. Um, when honestly, if you actually look at, it, they both say that a degree is usually required, and then ONET will have the uh, skills and, and knowledge requirements, which you can use to discern what type of degree would fit. Um, the other issue that we see. Uh, is they say, well, because OOH says, you know, most employers, but not all employers, require a bachelor's degree or higher. 
a degree is not normally required, which is just wrong. Um, those, are, those are the two most common issues. Uh, sometimes we see where an employer will offer a position and the position will require one of three or four different degrees, you know, all related, like they'll require math, engineering, or computer sciences. And USCIS will come back and say, well, you said you could have one of four. That's not a degree in a specialty field. Um, which again is kind of ridiculous. Uh, I think those are the key ones. So I think we have answered all of the questions that I see on the screen. So I'd like to thank everyone for attending today. We hope you found the information useful. If you have any additional questions, please reach out to either Dan or me and uh, our contact information you see on the screen. I want to let you know that a recording of the webinar will be available, uh, and it will be emailed to all of those who registered. We also regularly publish blogs and articles and news alerts to our email list and on social media. Uh, we encourage you to sign up for our emails at classgolaw.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. So on behalf of my partner, Dan Lundy, I thank you very much for attending.